Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. What have we been talking about? 1 Peter is a letter written to hand-picked outsiders. People that God has chosen to be outside of what is normal to the world around us. In fact, we are going to be doing things or not doing things that seem strange to the people around us. And this is what Peter has been preparing us for And he's been preparing us for this while writing to a group of people that are in the midst of suffering. And so our big idea has been that the readers, that is the original hearers and readers of the word, as well as ourselves, should be growing in faith and in faithfulness all of the time. Growing in faith and in faithfulness all of the time, but especially when we are suffering. Peter's going to wrap this all up in a nice little package if we can make it to the end of the passage today with that same idea. So let's get started. Verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you. I strongly encourage the elders among you. And now who's writing again? As a fellow elder. So Peter doesn't call himself a pope, he doesn't call himself some sort of super elder who's in charge of every other pastor in this region. He says, as a fellow elder, but then more specifically, labels himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Now, we know full well Peter's story, right? We know that when given the opportunity to say, yes, I stand With Jesus, he said, I don't know the guy. Leave me alone, right? Three times at that. Now, he also stood up for Jesus in brashness and in in fear, probably, and in emotion. And yet, when kindly rebuked by Christ, he, he stepped away. And he stepped away to see what was going on. And so, it's kind of odd that he calls himself a witness to the sufferings of Christ, um, but he is just that, starting uh, in the garden, watching, watching Christ labor over taking on the sins of the world. And then he says this, so I'm not just an elder, I'm not just among the pastors and the shepherds, Um, I am someone that actually saw Christ suffer and rise, but I'm also a partaker of in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter's saying, look, pastors, I'm just like you. And you know what? People of the church, I'm just like you. I am a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed. That is that he is one of these hand-picked outsiders. Now, what is an elder? Um, It's not just someone that might be older, right? Right? Uh, In this sense, an elder, what the word is, is a shepherd, okay? A shepherd, Uh, and 
This shepherd is supposed to be someone that leads the flock, cares for the flock, that is, the people of God. And so Peter doesn't say here, okay, leaders in the church. He's talking to someone specifically. He's talking to the kind of leader that God wants to have leading the church, and that is an elder or a shepherd. Um, we're going to see play out here three bad shepherds. Maybe three reasons that it's not good to be an elder, a pastor, um, or maybe just three different kinds of people. And we know these people. We've seen them. We've heard them. The first one is one that serves out of obligation. Now, in Peter's time, this could be someone that um, maybe they had the best grasp on God's word, and so everyone just said, okay, get up there. You need to preach for us because no one else is able to do it. Uh, maybe that's the case. Or maybe we've known someone like this, right, who honestly just can't do anything else. Therefore, they decide to become a pastor, right? Or maybe it's someone that needs job and finances, and so they say, okay, I'm going to become a pastor. This is serving out of an obligation that Peter says is not good, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. Also, serving for personal gain, and we see that all around us, don't we? In fact, just this week, I was listening to an interview. Um, the interviewer uh, is, a, is a pastor and a, a professor, a, a scholar, and he was interviewing a man named Costi with the last name of Hen, Costi Hen. And this is the nephew of one Benny Hen. Um, and Costi, one thing that he did growing up was that he was in charge of catching all the people that fainted and were being healed, okay? Uh, and he got paid uh, a six-figure salary a year as an 18-year-old to be catching people that were being healed. Uh, now, he is not living that kind of life. In fact, he's even pastoring and shepherding his parents who were a part of that ministry leading them slowly away from that to sell their mansions and to sell their cars and to sell their jet and to give money back to people that were sacrificing for this ministry that was a lie. They were serving for personal gain. And Peter calls that shameful, which we'll see in just a minute. And then lastly, and unfortunately, we know this one all too well. Oftentimes, we look at the other two and we say it's forgivable. You know, that person has their thing, I have my thing, let's just live with each other's sin. But this last one that Peter points out, unfortunately, is something that is constantly chasing people away from the church and away from God. So let's see that play out here. Shepherd the flock of God. Again, talking to the elders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Now what kind of oversight are we talking here? Uh, is this the kind of oversight that says, marry that person, not that person. Buy that house, not that house. Date that person, not that person. No, okay? <laughs> there may be in some cases 
where it's threatening to someone's soul and life and eternal life. That would be appropriate. But we see a picture elsewhere in 1 Peter as presented to us by Christ. Uh, In chapter 2, starting verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and to the overseer of your souls. Now obviously that's about Christ But this kind of oversight that we're talking about is a guardianship. Someone that is walking alongside of you, protecting you. And in this case, we're talking about the protection of our souls. So an elder is to be someone that is shepherding the flock of God. And here's another thing that is among you. So in my situation, it would not be appropriate for me to go to Pastor Mark in Somerset West, to step in front of him on a Sunday morning and to say, all right, church, let me tell you a little something, okay? That would be inappropriate. That is not the flock that is among me. That is not my flock, okay? Uh, And that's kind of the idea that Peter's getting across here. Exercising oversight, specifically guarding people's souls. Not under compulsion, which we talked about, but willingly, Because it's a desire that has been born in you by God. In fact, that's one thing that we see in Paul's writings that separates um, the office or the position of an elder and the position of a deacon. The position of an elder is one that must be desired. And that's for the people of God as well as the man of God to discern or help discern in a person's life, to see if that is something that is desired because God has put it in them and not because it's under compulsion or because the person simply needs work. But willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, right? but eagerly. Now, anyone can be eager for shameful gain because we are sinful, and yet... We're supposed to be eager without the shameful gain, okay? Not domineering those over those in your charge. Other translations say entrusted. Literally, it's someone, a member of a church, that God has handed over to the elder to say, you're in charge of this person. You're not in control of this person. You're to practice oversight of their soul. You're supposed to shepherd them, to teach them, and to lead them. And then we see this about five other times in the New Testament. And that is, but being examples to the flock. An elder is is supposed to be one that is an example to the flock as to how to live a life according to the way that God would have us live it. So here's three things that an elder is supposed to do. This is not exhaustive. Paul gives us other things that an elder is supposed to do, but Peter gives us a good outline here. Shepherding the flock, that is leading the flock, caring for the flock, feeding the flock. In fact, this is the exact same language that in John 21, after Jesus 
appears uh, to his disciples. He's sitting on the beach. He's just caught a bunch of fish for them. He's making them breakfast and serving them. And he asks Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, you know I do. Then shepherd the flock. Feed the sheep. And this is the exact same kind of language that Peter is using. Literally, the words given to him by Christ. Peter's just handing back out to the other under-shepherds, as, as it were. Also, to be practicing oversight, a guardianship, a protection, specifically over someone's soul. Serving with care and passion, we get that from verse 2, eagerly and willingly. And then lastly, living as an example, which again we see about five other times in the New Testament. But here's the one that gets me. Going on to verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We do this, elders do this, shepherds do this under the watchful eye of God and the sheep. Under the watchful eye of God and the sheep. Time out. In verse 4 it says, when the chief shepherd appears, we're going to be in some way responsible to the chief shepherd. But where do the sheep come in here? Well, if we go back to the entire letter and then back to verse 1, who is this written to? It's not written to the elders that are in Asia Minor. Right? Who's it written to? It's written to the church. The elect exiles, the hand-picked outsiders out there in the world. Church, this letter is written to you. And the role of an elder or a pastor is not only to be placing yourself under their leadership and under their authority, but to be safeguarding their leadership and safeguarding their authority. When a pastor gets out of control and is acting abusively or simply doing a job or simply doing a job for money, that's an opportunity for the church to step in and say, hey pastor, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> As Peter has already encouraged us, we are to be doing this not in our own strength, but in the strength that has been provided for us by God. And that's the only way that this job is done well. Another interesting thing about these verses, these first five verses that we see, is that it seems like this should have been taught to the people before. Right? I mean, elders should know this. People should know this. Well, look, um, we talked about it a little bit in the very first week. But this area that Peter is writing to is a brand new space for the church to be going into. Uh, and they're doing something that we like to call multiplication or church planting. There are people being saved. There are people being called out of darkness and into light. There are people that were formerly not chosen, not handpicked, that are handpicked now and called to be outsiders in the world. And Peter's laying down a teaching for them that they can understand. Um, and we know that they will receive more letters as time goes on. Speaking to the, to the elders now also, you will receive 
the unfading crown of glory. Is this a special? Ooh, ooh, pastors, we get something special here. Not really. <laughs> we, you know what pastors do get? They get judged more appropriately. They do get that. What is this? Well, we've seen this word unfading before, right? It's an inheritance that is given to all of those that have been handpicked and set aside, all of those that are partakers in the glory that is going to be revealed in Jesus' coming again. And so, what is this crown? This, this is salvation. This is salvation. This is forever relationship close with God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, actually, I must go back for just one second. One more note on the shepherds, on the elders. Um, we see, uh, if we were to go to Isaiah chapter 9, if we were to go to Jeremiah chapter 3, Jeremiah chapter 23, we would see a promise that one day God's people would have a shepherd after God's own heart. That they would have shepherds that actually cared for them, that actually led them well and actually fed them the proper food. We would also see that in Ezekiel 34. Along with that in Ezekiel 34, we would see shepherds, elders, that are judged for not feeding the sheep what they need. And so I had to go back to that simply because it was important. But also because all of that goes under... Um, this, this thing that Peter's teaching us now, I, I, this is the first time I've heard the word, humility. No, I'm joking. It's not the first time I've heard the word. Humility. Somehow, all of that, what an elder is supposed to do, fits under this category of being humble. And who are the younger here? Now, no offense, um, I'm, I'm aging, I'm aging, okay? But I am a little bit younger than some people in the room, okay? That's, how does this work out? Because, elder, I feel old some days. Do I fit that? Do I fit that? <laughs> um, okay, this, let's just say it like this. Who are the younger? That's what we want to get to. Um, and this younger actually could be a lot of things. Obviously, it means young people. And we know young people. And you might be looking at me saying, duh, you're the not humble one, pastor, okay? Uh, you're the proud one standing up there, and I hope that you don't think that about me, okay? But we know younger people, right? And having recently just been younger, um, <laughs> what? we are not humble, right? Uh, we go through lives, and sometimes it's just to try to get on to that next stage of life, but we are proud and we are just trying to make it on our own, not realizing that God has put into place a community of people around us that wants to help you get to where you need to be called the church, right? Uh, but this isn't just talking about that group of people, 
This is a place where multiplication has been happening, where church planting has been happening, where people are getting saved. This also is talking to people that are younger in the faith. It could be an elderly person that is younger in the faith. It could also be someone that maybe hasn't been discipled for their entire Christian life. And so Peter's talking to the elders, and then he says, everyone else that wants to be a leader in the church, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Be subject to the elders. Now we've talked about subjection before, right? Uh, In chapter 2, but again... uh, It is. It is exactly what the Word says. And yet, that should be okay under an elder that is not abusive. That should be okay under an elder that is not abusive. Clothe yourselves. Put on your clothes for work. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We see, we see that elsewhere in the New Testament. James writes that, but that's from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. We see here, too, that humility is something that should be built into a Christian. Why? We'll come back to that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now this is really interesting. We see this phrase five times, all in the Old Testament, all talking about one event. And that is the Exodus. God saving his people, calling out a group of people for himself from slavery into freedom. And Peter relates what's going on here to that same strong hand that has saved God's people before. Okay? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Alright, look, if God was able to dehabilitate to take low the greatest empire of the time in Egypt and rescue his people, here you go, you can cast all of your cares upon him. All of your concerns upon him. The issues that each of us have with trying to be good enough for the world around us, trying to be good enough for God, Peter says, put all of that off to the side because we have a God with a mighty hand that has saved people out of much worse circumstances. He can save you as well. And when you put your cares and your concerns upon God, this is a humbling of yourselves. It's an admitting that you cannot do it on your own and that you don't need to do it on your own, that someone else will do it for you. Be sober-minded. We've heard this a lot now, three or four times. I can't remember. But it just means think clearly. Think clearly about what is going on around you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now it's interesting because in Paul's writings, he oftentimes talks about the spiritual world around us, powers and authorities. He talks about putting on armor to protect us from these things so that we can stand firm. Uh, But Peter hasn't mentioned any of that. Why would that be? I'm not sure, but we can make a couple of guesses from what we've been reading. And the first of which is that God's people right now are not under attack from spiritual forces. Okay? They're under attack from real-life physical forces, maybe people that are being influenced by the evilness of their own heart and is being, are being spurred on by Satan and his minions. But they're, fe- they're actually physically suffering, right? Financially suffering. They're, they're not being treated well. They're being treated harshly. Uh, by husbands, by wives, by masters. So, the kind of suffering that they're experiencing right now is not just one that leads to depression. It's not just one that leads to feeling like you're alone in the world. This is a kind of suffering that actually is telling you you're alone in this world. (laughs) And in the midst of that, We all have a weakness, right? Because I'll be honest, in a time of pain and a time of suffering, the last thing that I really want to do is to go and sit down and simply rely on God to take care of my issues. And inevitably, not only does that lead to pride, the opposite of humility that we're talking about, but it leads to this old man inside of me, the sin sprouting up, its roots growing again in my life and displacing my reliance upon Jesus. And this is the perfect time for our adversary, the devil that prowls around like a roaring lion to consume us. Now, I know that there's a mix of people in this room that are going to say, you know what? That totally makes sense to me. That seems really real to me. Uh, Martin Luther uh, would always tell stories, always write stories rather, about the way that the devil was influencing him. And one time he was sitting in his study and he swore that the shadows on the wall were demons that were were taunting him while he was having writer's block. (laughs) And he threw his inkwell at at the shadows on the wall. Or one time he was walking by a wall and the wall fell down right behind him and he wasn't sure because he didn't see him, but he was certain nearly that Satan was on the other side of that wall trying to kill him with the bricks that fell down. Okay, now the next generation of, of church leaders that came after him, they don't, they don't talk like that. And many of us today don't talk like that. I'm not saying that you have to talk like that. What I am saying is that we need to understand that Satan is real. We need to understand that he is waiting for us to weaken in our reliance upon Christ and the good work that Christ has done for us on the cross. Resist him. This isn't put on your battle armaments and defeat him. 
This is very similar to what Paul encourages us to do in many places. Stand. And who fights that battle for us? God fights that battle for us with his mighty hand. Another thing that we see here, um, or we've seen it before rather, in verses 4 through 5 is that our lives, our salvation, our inheritance, the glory that we are to receive along with Christ is being guarded by us, guarded for us by God. It's being uh, empowered. We've been empowered by God for those things to be promised to us still. And then Peter finally encourages us that things like this, things like this are happening to our brothers and sisters all over the world. If you're experiencing this, you're not alone. You're not alone. It's happening all over the place. And it's interesting because Peter knows this more and more as he gets older, especially at this period of of time when he and Paul are both writing letters to churches. And then the next letter that Peter writes, which will be his last shortly before his death, and the fact that in John 21, uh, Jesus actually predicted, uh, he told Peter about his future death uh, because he would no longer be denying Christ, but that he would be speaking his name to the world. So Peter knows all too well that this is happening all over the world, and soon it would put an end to him. But three essentials that we see for growing in faith and in faithfulness here in these verses. The first of which is we must be humble. These are three things that Peter is telling us that we cannot live in faith and in faithfulness without. The first of which is humility. Be humble. The second, be clear-minded. Think rightly about these things. And then lastly, you can add a B onto the beginning of this. Be standing firm. Be standing firm. Be humble. Be clear-minded. Be standing firm. Verse 10, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Look, everything that is wrong right now is going to be made right. And this suffering that you're experiencing is only a short time. Peter's not trying to belittle us, right? He's not trying to say, hey, this little thing that you have going on, don't worry about it. No, because he knows very well that it's going to kill him. But he knows that it's only short term. And the long term, something else is going to happen. We will be restored to what we are supposed to be. We will be confirmed in our faith. We will be strengthened by the fact that before, in verse, chapter 1, verse 8, though we do not see Him, we believe in Him. We will be strengthened by the fact that we will see Him and we will know for sure who it is that Christ is. And then we will be finally and eternally established in who Jesus is and who God desires for us to be. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, we've seen this once before 
in chapter 4, verse 11. We've also seen something very similar to this back in chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22, I'll go there if you don't want to. Talking about Jesus now, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. He is in dominion over them. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. All right, and we see this again here. Um, not much else to say about that except for it is once again Peter confirming to us that Jesus is in control. By Sylvanius. Hold on, I thought Peter, okay, Peter wrote this letter. Uh, it could be that Peter's speaking the letter and someone else is writing it down. We see in Acts, I forget which chapter, but we see in Acts that Sylvanius has been someone that is trustworthy to carry letters passed back between churches. So it's possible that he's writing it and that he is carrying it um, on behalf of Peter. And Peter confirms he is a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you. Well, it's taken us 17 weeks, but yes, it was a brief letter, I guess, in the long run. Exhorting that is strongly encouraging. Declaring that is speaking the truth about who God is and who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And now here's, I think, where it gets really interesting, though. Declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, before we've been asked to stand firm, right? We've been asked to keep relying on Jesus, to keep resting in Him. And what we might not realize, and what we need to always remember, that we stand in faith by grace, right? And Peter reminds us of that. How are we standing? By our own strength. No, we are standing by the true grace of God. We are standing firm in what we believe by the true grace of God. We have faith because of the true grace of God. And then Peter continues, oh sorry, three final encouragements that we're seeing here in these last couple of verses. Suffering only lasts a little while. Things will be made right. You stand firm in grace and a victory that has been won for you. Never forget that this is something that has already been won for you. She who is at Babylon. Now that's interesting. Babylon is an extinct empire <laughs> uh, that has been gone for many, many years now. So, why would Peter say that? She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. All right, Babylon, here's the deal. When God's people got sent into exile and were asked to be faithful, where were they? They were in Babylon, right? Peter's calling us back to everything that we've been learning. A letter that has been heavily Old Testament, right? That's been 
helping us to understand uh, what God was saying in things that he wrote in the Old Testament. It's helped us to understand what Noah's flood was. And Okay? Here we see Peter saying, hey, look, you are exiles. Don't forget that. Do you know how? I know that you're exiles and that I'm in exile and that we are all outsiders that have been handpicked. We're in Babylon. He could be talking about Rome, which is where he's probably writing this letter from, um, which is very Babylon-like, okay? But he's simply saying that everywhere in the world where we are scattered now, uh, it's Babylon. Be faithful there. And he's not saying Babylon is likewise chosen. He's saying that those other Christians spread throughout the world who have also been handpicked, chosen right alongside of you, they send you greetings from where I'm writing. And so does Mark. And who are we talking here? We're talking the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Sitting with Peter. Perhaps even pinning that Gospel. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That would be a little heavy-handed. Let's not go there, but um, treat each other with love. And may peace be abounding, just like what Peter said back at the beginning, more and more. In fact, there's a parallel that we see here. Chapter 1, verse 1. It's from Peter to elect exiles. Grace and peace to you. May it be ever-increasing. He says, I, Peter, here in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. I, Peter, chosen just like you have been. I'm an exile just like you've been in Babylon. Peace to you. Let me pray for us. God, you are a gracious Father. And we thank you for reaching down to us with your mighty hand and saving us from our slavery to our sin and to ourselves. God, we had been captured up by the world around us. And we have been taught to speak of our greatness and our goodness instead of yours. We worshiped your creation instead of you, our creator. We praise our own morals, not knowing how short we fall, not knowing what it means to be truly holy as you are truly holy. But God, you did reach down and you guided us with your son, Jesus. Though we were strained like sheep, he declared himself to be the overseer of our souls, to be the guardian of our souls, not demanding something from us, but living completely according to every demand of your perfection, your holiness. Jesus himself 
carried and became our sin in His body, hung on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It is by His wounds that we have been healed. As the caretaker of our souls, He brought us back to you. He turned us so that we would be turned. He repented us so that we would be repented. So that we would be made right with you. God, may this humble us every single day. May this always continually turn us away from ourselves and continually bring us back to you. Lord, we ask that this would make us watchful and mindful of the enemy that lurks around us, just waiting for us to grow weak, to rely on ourselves. Just waiting to consume us. We pray for our brothers and sisters here in our midst, our neighbors, and all around the world who are suffering both for you and or in your name, God. We, we weep with them. And yet we know that they are displaying your glory in a brightness that we probably do not. We thank you for them, Lord. God, we ask that in all that we do, that you would be known as glorious through your Son, Jesus. God, help us only and ever to rest in and rely upon his person and his work. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.